welcome to the latest edition of the Business Agenda podcast. I'm Harvey Weaver, Asher's partner in our project practice based in London. This is the second episode in our two-part series with McKinsey and Company on its Global Infrastructure Initiative. A summit on the Global Infrastructure Initiative recently took place in Tokyo with senior stakeholders from around the globe who met to discuss what needs to be done to create pathways to sustainable infrastructure. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Adrian Dwyer, CEO of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia, and James Heath, Chief Executive of the UK's National Infrastructure Commission, and we'll discuss the key takeaways of the summit. By way of introduction, Adrian's career has spanned policy and public service roles across the private sector and New South Wales and Australian governments, and he has had a number of policy roles in Infrastructure Partnerships Australia before being appointed CEO in 2018. Infrastructure Partnerships Australia itself is an independent statutory body and industry think tank, which provides advice on infrastructure policy and regulatory forms and exists to shape public debate and drive reform for the national interest. James Heath is a public policy and strategy expert and held a number of policy roles in government and organizations such as the BBC before becoming the chief executive officer of the National Infrastructure Commission. The National Infrastructure Commission is an executive agency of HM Treasury and provides government with impartial expert advice on major long-term infrastructure challenges. It advises government on all sectors of economic infrastructure and recently added climate change and resilience as core objectives to focus on. I hope you enjoy our discussion. The summit looked at quite a range of issues uh, kind of over the course of the three days. I mean, ex- examples that spring to my mind were need for government intervention on issues such as net zero, increasing independence between energy and transport solutions as these new technologies develop, supply chain shortages, uh, efficiency in construction, for example, uh, and obviously the inflationary pressures were mentioned a lot, um, and also the increasing importance um, as we move towards digitalization of more data protection and, and cybersecurity. Those were just some of the themes that occurred to me. Adrian, maybe I can turn to you first. What were the kind of key themes that came to you out of the summit? I've been lucky enough to go to a couple of physical GII summits and um, attend the, the virtual ones during the unpleasantness over the last couple of years with COVID. And what was striking for me this time versus the other time is actually the consensus that, that existed around the issues, and particularly um, net zero. Previously, I found there's quite different uh, priorities depending where you are in the world and what stage you're on in the journey. Whereas this time, there's a real, uh, a real pinpoint around net zero as being the target that, that the whole world's aiming at. But of course, that was against the context of inflation, cost of living, equity, et cetera, et cetera, all these other external stimuli. Uh, that we, we, we discussed a lot and, and through the, the three days the conversation really moved and we I think there were a lot of answers to those things started to emerge but the striking thing was that everybody's aiming at the same problem we don't all have the same solutions and I don't think anybody's got the complete solution but we all at least agree on the problems we're tackling which is actually quite refreshing. And James from any particular thoughts from from you? I was hit by the sort of size of the opportunity actually for economic infrastructure to sort of fix some of the I suppose some of the biggest problems facing facing most countries in the world there's obviously the, the the net zero piece 
here in the UK, I think about 70% of CO2 emissions are from infrastructure. There's also the sort of debate about infrastructure's role in enhancing society's resilience, obviously to climate, climate risks like sort of flooding and drought, and also the piece around infrastructure's role in sustainable economic growth. So there's a real sort of, if you like, a consensus on the size of the opportunity. But also, I think there was a, a recognition uh, among most people about actually the challenge is equally great. And all those things I've just mentioned, climate mitigation, climate mitigation, economic growth, all of them are going to require this huge sort of wave of sustained large scale investment, both from sort of public and private sectors to help fix sort of trillions of dollars per year to sort of finance to finance these sort of solutions. That's going to have to be done at a time of huge affordability challenges in most countries and big headwinds. So how you sort of I took away from it, if you like at the end, how how on earth do you square this circle? and put the conditions in place to get that level of investment that's going to be needed to sort out these big challenges and sort of seize those sort of huge opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I took away was that what what's quite interesting, as you both said, is that there was a kind of, yeah, obviously net zero, a, a big thing at the moment, definitely came up in the summit quite a lot. But a lot of the focus, and, and we'll come on to this maybe in a few minutes, about, as, as about government, in that a lot of the messages given is that the kind of people everywhere, investors, sponsors, whatever, you're a contractor, everyone recognizes the problems. Uh, and actually there's a lot of private money out there looking for a home that realizes if they can, if you can kind of find a way to fix these problems, they're very attractive investments. It didn't come across attending that summit as though, you know, everyone was worried where you would get the money from. It was almost a question of making sure that money um, kind of is put in the in the right way and giving investors um, you know either you know the right regular regimes the right government stimulus or whatever to actually go into there because I think everyone realizes that there are there are major challenges but if you see yourself as a kind of business and part of the infrastructure community you have to be part of the solution and therefore there's lots of opportunities as well but as you say at the moment you know there's a, there's an element there's there's lots of challenges there's both um, you know the, the net zero there's the inflationary pressures uh, there's a cost of living crisis etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think it's just trying to kind of narrow down and you know and getting those kind of first wave projects away that i know quite a lot of the, the kind of countries are looking at on the face of it um it's actually a pretty simple equation right it, it, and it's been the same since time immemorial you, you capital's a coward it goes to where it's treated well um, and if treating capital well means reasonable risk-adjusted returns. So if, if the projects and the commercial structures or the, the, the government funding structures around them means that a, a reasonable buck can be made, there'll be capital available. Um, I think that the challenge is more about adjusting the way we do things to the new paradigm of net zero within the context of all those uh, other challenges that we, we spoke about. Um, yeah, one of the striking things about infrastructure is we tend to do bits of infrastructure um, pretty much the same way as we did the last ones. Um, there'll be, of course, mild iterations and changes and improvements, but there's a radical challenge coming and therefore a need to radically change the way we do those things. We can get the capital as long as we construct these, these projects correctly. I think the, the problem is if we keep 
millions of tons of concrete into the ground that is nowhere near carbon efficient and we try and transition the energy system by doing things slightly better than we did last time then we're not going to meet the collective targets we've all agreed to and that that's where the challenges around productivity innovation changing the way we do things start to emerge and some of those answers i thought came through a lot in the discussions we had in tokyo yeah, and I, and I think one thing, you know, there's been lots of um, kind of, you know, talk about kind of resilient infrastructure. I think, James, uh, we mentioned in the intro that, you know, that's one of the focuses for the National Infrastructure Commission, lo looking at the resilience as well. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things to take up on your point, Adrian, we've started to see here a little bit in the UK is people looking at how better to procure projects, you know, getting away from that traditional mindset. And, and looking more at the kind of end state they want to achieve. I mean, sometimes it's called the target state. You look at the end of your project, what do you want your kind of consumer customer to have? Um, and then work back as how the best way to do it. Um, just turning to actually, we've mentioned kind of government uh, a few times there. I mean, the kind of concept of kind of government role and intervention came up quite a few times uh, at the summit, um, certainly in the context of, you know, helping to kickstart business models for areas such as net zero, um, you know, in the context of making sure kind of different arms of government are speaking when it comes to joining the dots on say carbon reduction and transport and, and those kind of links. Um, I mean, you're both members of organizations that work um, pretty closely with government, uh, obviously. Do you think kind of governments are doing enough to facilitate that kind of change and, and what could their kind of key areas of focus be? The short answer in Australia is that we see governments simultaneously doing too much and too little. So on the things they do too much, there is this tendency to intervene in markets for, for very, very plausible reasons. So if I think about the energy market, there is a, there's a tendency from government to go for direct interventions to relieve cost of living pressures, to um, cap particular inputs to the market that, uh, and distort that market and even do direct intervention in terms of building things or financing things, all with good intentions. But unfortunately, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and each of those things begins to undermine confidence in the market. So in some areas, there's kind of too much happening. And then we see other areas where there's kind of clear market failure where we're not seeing government intervention in large part because the, the, the sort of political ducks don't line up so i guess where where we'd like to see governments focus their attention is intervene where there's genuine market failure but those interventions should be first and foremost by setting the rules of the game not playing the game and not getting directly involved in it because inevitably that begins to distort the incentives which begets more intervention which begets more intervention you end up with this sort of sort of collapse of the structures that have actually fared as well in, in the Australian infrastructure sector for 30 years or more. Um, and, and actually, we should be preserving and enhancing those and making them right-sized for the new paradigm rather than this kind of need to do something. Really interesting perspective, Adrian. I think, look, I think in the, in the UK, I mean, one of the big challenges here is there's clearly going to be a significant amount of public investment going in from governments, but probably the vast majority of the investment that's going to be required to fix fix problems around uh, net zero, indeed climate adaptation is going to come from the private sector. So therefore, how do you get that wave of capital in while keeping the cost of sort of capital low is a real challenge for, for government. And 
I suppose the first thing it needs to do, where I think the UK government has been pretty good, is setting sort of long-term ambitious targets and goals that the market can then orientate itself around. The UK has been pretty good on that uh, in areas like net zero, but also some of the longer-term targets you're starting to see on sort of biodiversity and sort of water. But those ambitious goals then need to be matched with the necessary pace of change. Uh, and I think that is where the UK can do more. I think far too frequently delivery on the ground is lagging behind the ambition of those goals. And I think overall, we probably do need a more consistent, long-term committed approach, both to policy and, and delivery, um, because the sort of chopping and changing of policy, which we have seen in some areas, does create uncertainty. Uh, and investors don't like that uncertainty. Um, a sort of example, the sort of stop-start approach in the UK to energy efficiency has led to quite low rates of installations over the past decade. Um, but if you like, it contrasts that with where we've got it right, where sort of policy stability from government has created, if you like, the mechanisms that resulted in big deployment of renewable energy. So I think we need more staying power on policy. Um, we probably need, so I probably disagree a bit, Adrian, perhaps uh, with you. I think we probably do need some fewer, bigger, better interventions. I think we probably need some more pace rather than perfection here if we're going to try and make real progress on climate change. I think there's a real risk of delay now becoming bigger than the risk of getting a few things wrong. And I think government's got to take some strategic bets uh, on this. Uh, and I think finally, I'd just say there probably needs to be in the UK, even more devolution of funding and decision making to a local level, because lots of these problems, particularly in transport, are going to be solved at, at the local level. Well, I'm really interested in the sort of inertia that you spoke about. Um, is that is it risk aversion that's led to inertia? Is it transactional capability? Why? Why isn't it moving? It's an interesting question. Is a sort of there's sort of this 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 debate in a number of the areas, in a number of the sort of uh, areas, particularly around energy, whether it's sort of hydrogen networks or CC carbon capture storage networks, about this sort of balance between, if you like, preserving optionality and seeing how the market develops versus government taking some risk and taking some bets um, and what that balance is in terms of government policy and both, if you like, both schools have different risks and different rewards. But I feel as though we might be reaching a point actually where the risks of delay on making some of these calls are actually starting uh, to be greater than the risks of getting some things wrong, which we're inevitably going to do when you're looking at sort of trillion, sort of billion dollar transitions. We are going to get some stuff wrong, but given some of the targets in the UK, particularly 2035 and major reductions, that's getting very quick and to reform your grid roll out ev charging make major progress in eat decarbonization within the space of sort of 10 years there's some significant challenges there i think we're only going to make progress if we're probably willing to take some sort of bigger and bolder steps and overcome some of the inertia that's in the system yeah so i think i mean taking those themes i mean one is that that kind of kind of pace of change, uh, and I think you're right. I mean, I think one one of the things that came out in the summit was there was lots of talk. You know, there now needs to be some action. Otherwise, if we're talking in five, ten years, you know, it's all far too late. And I think, you know, from a government point of view, it's almost if I, if I took some of your themes there, it, it's almost you know creating that investability, almost leading with these kind of first of a kind projects, which I know, 
you know, a lot of the work the UK are doing in kind of carbon capture and hydrogen and it is trying to accelerate that, but almost setting up that framework for the private sector to invest in. And obviously, those projects have got to have the right risk allocation and then effectively the market effectively will take over. Um, and when you've got that opportunity off and running, where does those kind of opportunities then effectively the market will then effectively develop itself. So it's almost giving those kind of first of a kind kind of opportunities. And I think, yeah, the other one is, um, you know, and however good that may be, it's looking at you know, areas like the red tape, you know, you know putting in uh, new kind of, you know, electricity generation is great as we move to kind of more EV and everything else. But obviously, if, if, if constructing it is one thing, if you've got to get there, then the transmission line to market and they take 10 years or whatever, um, then, you know, you're creating kind of a, a, a different sort of problem. And I think the other thing we're starting to see, um, um, you know, when, when we're talking to kind of, kind of clients in the market is that, um, you know, there's now much more of a need to government to be joined up in terms of linking. So, for example, you know, you're taking new uh, hydrogen, for example, production to try and stimulate that kind of area. Um, that's something that certainly a lot of air, people in the kind of transport area, for example, uh, are looking at as well. Uh, and it's making sure that, you know, the, the kind of policy around um, encouraging those type of hydrogen projects to take one example, you know, and the need for kind of, you know, um, people looking at hydrogen trains and everything else. It's making sure that the two areas kind of develop, if you like, if you're looking at it from government to make sure you can join those dots. Because otherwise, it could be lots of kind of good work in one area and good work in another. But actually, unless you can join the two together, um, obviously, you're going to create a problem and you're going to be much, much less effective. So I think, you know, that that's some of the themes kind of we're seeing kind of, um, you know, people we're talking to in the market. Um, it, it's quite a key focus and where they're looking, I suppose, for, for leadership on. There's some interesting parallels with the Australian market in that we, Australia is really interesting from a, um, uh, an energy transition transition perspective because as you know um there was a lot of den denial here for a period of time obviously australia exports a lot of coal uh, has high per capita carbon emissions particularly from our energy systems because it's just an abundance of of coal uh, and that's the way the system was built up um, but simultaneously had the highest uptake of rooftop solar anywhere in the world so it actually despite the rhetoric of governments and a, a former government that sort of had a war around climate um we'd actually done pretty well and australia is blessed with extraordinary renewable resources so the the hydrogen um piece that's being spoken about here is an export opportunity so effectively turning australian sunlight and wind into hydrogen and exporting it to countries that have less sunlight and, and less wind um the problem still comes back to the grid like how do you move that sunlight in particular from the middle of australia where it's really sunny to where the people live on the edge of australia or where the ports are to expect export that as as hydrogen to elsewhere so it all comes back to a, a pure infrastructure play which is how do you fund, finance, construct and operate a, a, a massively larger transmission grid to be able to accommodate a, a sort of diffuse force uh, sources of, of solar. And I think the challenge is, and, I, and I'm, I'm sure James would agree on this, is how did the whole of the Western world do that at the same time? 
we're all aiming at the same target. We all have targets in you know, 2030, 2035, and ultimately 2050. We're all aiming at the same doorway. And I don't, I don't think that's ever happened before. I don't think we've ever all been focused on achieving exactly the same outcome. Now, the how does that rubber hit the road on that? Well, if you're a high voltage uh, uh, electrical engineer, you're about to have a busy couple of decades and we haven't got nearly enough of them to do what we need to do. No, Adrian, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, you feel like Australia's challenge on a solar uh, is our challenge on offshore wind. So we are in the UK, we are building offshore wind at a significant pace. I think we've got a target about 50 gigawatts offshore wind by 2030, but we're building it much faster than we're building the transmission infrastructure to get that wind on shore and move it around to where it's used. I mean, I think I, think I heard a stat from the sort of Boston National, uh, National Grid, which is of the UK's big, uh, big electricity infrastructure company, that given growing demand for electricity, they've got to build about five times as much transmission infrastructure in the next seven to eight years as they did in the last 30. And if you like, one of the biggest constraints here is there's the investment constraint, but actually the, the planning system constraint uh, where it's taking, I think this is a Western world problem. It's a France and Germany problem as much as a, as a UK problem. I don't know the, ex the extent it's from Australia, but it takes about 10 years to build a transmission line, three years to build it, but seven years for the consenting and the planning. And, and that's a longer, I think that's longer than it took to create the sort of entire original grid in the UK in the 20s and 30s. Um, so how we fix this problem and how we accelerate that planning system and constraint and, and the consent system is huge. I've got a few ideas on, 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 on how it can be done, but unless it's done, it's probably going to become the major constraint on the delivery of net zero over time. To give you a practical example of how that hands here, James, I'm, the, the, the roof I'm talking to you from under has solar panels on it, and I got them installed five, six years ago. It took six weeks between deciding I wanted them getting quotes and getting them installed at, at an at scale solar farm at least six years if you can connect it to the grid because the grid is constrained and there's limited coordination about where it comes in efficiencies of scale and scope tell you it doesn't really make sense to put solar panels on everybody's roof you're much better off with an at scale solar farm the only reason that there is such a high penetration of solar panels on australians roofs is there is deemed planning consent to do it you you don't have to seek consent you can just get solar panels and it, and it takes six years to get up from so it's a it's a common issue uh, there's nothing like a crisis to solve these problems and we're we're staring down the barrel of a of a crisis and we shouldn't waste it we do need to be quite creative and perhaps more interesting in how we think about solving some of these problems um, of course, we can we can try and streamline the planning system and basically try and squeeze each stage. UK can be much clearer in terms of strategic direction and what it wants to build where and get, if you like, political agreement on that, which then aids things going through the consenting system. But I also wonder whether we've got to be more creative in looking at things like undergrounding cables, where that's possible. I mean, it's always going to be expensive at a, at a unit level, but it's not necessarily expensive the overall scale of the power system clearly it won't be suitable everywhere it will take a lot of land but i just wonder whether that's an area that needs to be looked at more and also um a more strategic approach to sort of community benefit that a sort of places are hosting this infrastructure 
that they don't really want and that they don't really gain from, but there's a wider public good. And therefore, what sort of benefit should people be receiving for doing that? And there's a debate going on in the UK about electricity price discounts for people who live near to onshore wind farms. Should we be looking at similar type of models for people who are close to transmission and distribution infrastructure? I mean, there's lots of issues here to be debated. But I think unless we look at some more creative innovative solutions, I don't think we're going to accelerate the system to actually meet the level of demand that's going to be on us in a few years time. Yeah, and just to pick up on that point, James, actually, that's an interesting one about, you know, when you look at, you know, transmission lines and planning consents and everything else, which, as, as you say, take a long time. And, and everyone, I think, obviously supports all that expansion going. But, you know, as, as we've seen for years and years, you know, when it actually comes to being in the locality, that's that, that that's very different. And I think it's almost um, and there's no magic answer getting that that balance, as, as you say. Is it a question of saying, you know, we will need to put transmission lines here. Obviously, the benefit is wider um, to everyone, but actually there are some real benefits, cost benefits to you um, in having these assets there. Obviously, there's issues kind of such as safety and other things, but certainly if you look at what we're in at the minute, you know, a kind of cost of living crisis, electricity prices going up, inflation going up, you know, if there could be to actually some financial benefits um, that make it more attractive, it's not trying to obviously suggest you can force them through come what may, but actually getting that kind of giving people the ability to, to, to look at that trade-off and make decisions themselves. Now, obviously, it sounds how you'd implement it would obviously take quite a lot of thought. Um, but certainly, you know, you, you come up with that kind of problem where you've got a net zero issue you're trying to solve. You've got a transmission line um, you know, issue where you need to get them. Everyone knows kind of net zero is, is, is a key thing. There's government commitments. I think now the kind of climate skeptics of, of, of kind of, you know, not that there are not anymore, but that that kind of kind of furore has died down a bit um, and it's trying to marry marry them together. And I think obviously that's where government, you know, does have a role to play, but actually it comes again to that kind of point I was making earlier about different arms of government making sure they're talking um, and, and working out a solution. And as you said, I think earlier, you know, knowing that to an extent there may be a bit of failure um, or, or problems or with hindsight you'd have done things in a different way but I think you're right the, 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 the dangers of not doing something uh, are now much worse than doing something in a probably slightly efficient way that hopefully you will then learn from when you kind of you know roll this out kind of in the future. Just, just turning to we, we've obviously talked about Australia quite a lot the UK you know a lot of the kind of issues we've talked about are kind of very much in Kind of the, the developed countries where we are at the moment. I think one of the things that were mentioned a few times at the uh, the summit was obviously the disparity between developed and developing countries. And um, yeah, the power sector being a good example. We've talked quite a lot here about you know net zero and solar and wind and all that kind of stuff. Where in some countries, you know, the issue simply of having enough power is the one that's paramount, and and how clean it is is almost kind of a secondary issue. Um, I mean. Do you think we recognise that enough? And, you know, obviously we sit here kind of from a developed country perspective a bit. Do you think there's kind of things that can be passed on to developed countries, things that you can help facilitate um, them probably getting up the curve um, a, a bit quicker? I don't want to stray into areas of, of sort of moral philosophy, but, but quite clearly um, you know, we, we've had all the advantages of, of using cheap fossil fuels to uh, to developers' countries, and there's a there's a perfectly legitimate 
to say for us to then say well having benefited from that that, that others can't largely because of a problem we've contributed more than than others clearly there are opportunities ahead around things like technology transfer and um, the things that have emerged from COP with um, wealth transfer to be able to support transition in other countries. So I think there's a there's a balance needed here. But there's also we also just need to acknowledge. I think it was mentioned a few times in Tokyo. It's, and you said it there, Harvey. There there are still people in places like India, significant millions, tens, hundreds of millions of people in places like India who simply don't have access to reliable power, and um, it's pretty rich for us to to be saying no you you can't have that when we have so i think we just need we need to be a little bit careful about how we approach it yeah it's almost a question of kind of basically you know passing that technology transfer as you say and maybe instead of going from from a kind of fossil fuel type development through eventually to more renewables actually you know enabling with that technology transfer and, and as hopefully you know inflationary pressures apart costs coming down some of this equipment, they almost misstepped. So, you know, and we've seen in places like Vietnam recently, big programs, you know, where actually they're kind of filling that kind of power hole, if you like, is actually you go straight to trying to do it with renewables and things like that. Whereas instead of going through that more kind of fossil fuel intensive phase. The challenge is, the challenge is pretty stark. I mean, you do have this, what feels like a growing gap between on the needs of developing countries in terms of the impacts they're facing from climate change and then the ability of developing countries to actually finance the transition which is on any estimate is going to cost trillions of dollars to sort out so i think that in terms of developed countries role that package of how do you mobilize finance whether it's grants or guarantees or non-debt instruments whatever it is how do you mobilize finance including from international uh, financial institutions plus as you said uh, Adrian so I was looking at technology transfer and cooperation technology plus capacity building that type of package at scale feels like what what is going to be needed to deal with this problem but it's but it's huge in Asia obviously you've got organizations like Asian Development Bank and whatever trying trying to lead on that but um, as you say the, the key issue is is the scale it's also a really difficult argument to deploy in the midst of cost of living crisis in in places like the UK and Australia, you know, and, and I have observed it more in the UK than perhaps in Australia, where it's not as as high a political issue at the moment. But there are there are things like cuts to international development budgets consistently over time in the UK from um, perfectly reasonable standing points of people saying, "Well, hold on a second, why are we sending money to do this when?" I can't afford to heat my house or, or I'm visiting a food bank or, or whatever the challenge is. Now, I, I, on, a, on a personal level, I happen to think there's very good reasons why you should, we should still be um, doing that development funding. But as James said, this requires a step change in the volume of funding to assist other countries to make the transition that, that we're going to go through. And that's a really hard argument to, to make in the current climate. We've obviously had quite a focus on Australia and the UK and, and obviously kind of looked for developing countries as well. I mean, in terms of from where you're sitting now in, in the kind of shorter term, and, and, and Adrian, actually, you've mentioned the kind of cost of living crisis and, and, and again, which is, which is proving challenges for, for everyone, including infrastructure. I mean, over the next kind of couple of years, what would you say you see the kind of key challenges in, in, in Australia being? But obviously, 
also the kind of the key opportunities, um, you know, where actually there can be some real kind of step changes, if you like. Um, and, you know, how do you see that kind of short term landscape? Um, so I'll go for challenges first. I'll, um, I'll infrastructure theme it for you. PPP, but not public private partnerships. Um, <laughs> people, prices and politics are the three challenges over the next couple of years. So just to break those down, people, um, we have um, under 4% unemployment in Australia. It was, it was often said during the, the mining boom in Australia up to about 2011 that if, uh, if you're in Perth walking down the street and you had a pulse, you could get a job. We're at the point now where the pulse, frankly, is, is a nice to have. We shut the borders for a long time during COVID. We couldn't bring people in. We've had people retire from the workforce. And I know this is an issue facing the UK as well. We just cannot get enough people to deliver um, some of the non-negotiable parts of, of the infrastructure build, which goes to prices. Of course, that's one price input. The uh, inflation and the cost of getting scarce people to do that, but also scarce resources in a global environment where we're competing for some of the same bits of technology. You know, We'll all be wanting the same offshore. Uh, wind turbines for instance so there's a danger of competing up prices there how do you how do you make sure that those that you get the, the infrastructure efficiently within a in an affordable envelope and then just the politics again driven in large part by the cost of living crisis the, the tendency of governments to want to intervene directly the tendency of governments with um, perfectly legitimate motivations seek to allocate money in particular places and allocate interventions in particular places that are, are tactically laudable but strategically bad and we have to try and accept that some of that will happen but try and suppress it as much as possible on opportunities there there abound australia uh, once again is um, blessed as it was with the last energy boom of having things like gas and coal and other things that we could sell to the rest of the world we have extraordinary renewable resources um, uh, sun, onshore wind, offshore wind, the capacity uh, and the smarts to be able to turn that into a, a massive export industry is huge, uh, as well as um, decarbonising the, the domestic grid as well, uh, alongside all sorts of other opportunities to, uh, to do things well. So in general, I'm an optimist and I'm very optimistic, but there's certainly some challenges to overcome over the next few years. And James, from a kind of UK perspective. Yeah, so I, I I go back to where I started at, um, at at the beginning of this of this discussion that there's there's some big opportunities for if we get infrastructure policy and planning right for infrastructure to help solve some of the big questions around decarbonisation economies around adapting to climate change and around sustainable economic growth. But there's to meet those challenges, there's probably no way of getting away from the fact that infrastructure investment overall will need to go up. And I think if we pick the, the net zero challenge, the decarbonisation challenge, this, this is effectively going to be capital intensive, isn't it? It's going, to, it's going to involve sort of substituting new capital assets like wind turbines and the reinforced electricity grids that me and Adrian were talking about for the sort of OPEX costs of fossil fuels. And, and while there the definitely should be significant savings for households um, from those type of investments, given the, the operating costs of um, low carbon technologies like sort of EVs should come down over time, 
those savings will materialize over a longer period of time. So the costs of those upfront investments are going to have to be borne at some potential cost of household consumption in the short term. And that gets into an interesting sort of political economy question. It's right back to Adrian's point about politics, about whose consumption is affected and when is going to depend on the different funding routes that we choose, whether that's going to be household self-funding, households paying via their water bills and electricity bills, or are we going to try and do this mainly through general taxation? And what funding mechanism you pick is going to have really important sort of distributional consequences and political consequences. And therefore, how we do this, having an open and honest debate about the cost of net zero alongside the benefits, which there undoubtedly are of net zero, I think needs to happen. Trying to pretend it's all upside and that there's no major cost, I think we'll take it in the wrong direction. I absolutely agree with that. The need for honesty in this, I think we've moved on net zero generally, we've gone from long on rhetoric to now people focusing on the practical realities, but there's an honesty missing in the debate. Then we need to acknowledge that whilst there is long-term upside and potentially lower cost in the short term, this is, this is gonna require some really hard decisions. And, and as James said, in particular, that intergenerational equity piece is a real political flashpoint. And one that you, you, we just have to have a, a an honest debate. Okay, I think we'll kind of wrap it up there. So um, again, thanks very much, Adrian and James for your time. Uh, interesting to hear the kind of different perspectives, but also a lot of the similarities between what's been experienced in Australia and the UK in terms of the kind of challenges and opportunities. So thanks again, we really appreciate your insight and, and for your participating today. Thanks very much, Harvey, and um, good to reconnect with yourself and James again. I, I really enjoyed the discussion. Great to see you again, Adrian, and thanks for convening, Harvey. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks again to Adrian and James for their time, thoughts, and insights. To make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes, please subscribe to this podcast by Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. While you're there, you can also listen to our first episode on the Tokyo Global Infrastructure Summit, and please feel free to leave us a rating or a review. In the meantime, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now. If you enjoy Ashurst Business Agenda, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Legal Outlook explains the emerging legal trends and requirements of our fast-changing world. And ESG Matters at Ashurst reveals how business leaders are rising to mounting environmental, social and governance challenges. You can listen and subscribe to Legal Outlook and ESG Matters wherever you get your podcasts.